Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. Our podcast is hosted on Bigelow's website, which is bigelowllc.com, where we freely share immediately useful information with high-performing entrepreneur owner-managers who want to build their enterprise value and possibly create a capital gain someday. Ever notice that some private enterprises successfully transition through evolutions and revolutions we all go through in leadership, management, even ownership? Some end up with terrific new majority owners, the entrepreneur-owner-managers moving gracefully into the next interesting and rewarding chapter of their lives, surrounded by friends, their positive legacy assured, their independence powered by the fortune they just realized, while others' outcomes look more like well, they look more like a train wreck. Is it merely luck, or is it more than that? At Bigelow, we think it's more than luck. For over 30 years, I've had the fun of meeting with thousands of seasoned successful private business owners and working closely with hundreds and hundreds of them. I've seen that successfully striving for achievement and ultimately fulfillment leaves clues, kind of like breadcrumbs in the forest that we can follow. Deconstructing the behavior of high-performing EOMs lets us learn a lot about peak performance and optimal experience. So in this series of podcasts, I double-click and interview seasoned, successful entrepreneur-owner-managers who are high-performers, maybe even peak-performers in their niche domains, both in the for-profit world and also the not-for-profit world. Today, I'm thrilled to share with you a personal one-on-one interview with my friend, client, and guest, Cam Brensinger founder and CEO of Nemo Equipment, one of the leading designers and manufacturers of outdoor adventure equipment in the world. The startup of Nemo took place as Cam graduated from the Rhode Island School of Design. Today, their product spectrum includes the best tents, sleeping bags, pads, pillows, camp furniture, and other technology-forward products you'll find anywhere on the globe. Nemo has received countless awards and recognition for their caring, entrepreneurial spirit. Just a few of them include one of the 10 best places to work in New Hampshire, product awards from the juried competition of the Outdoor Industry Association, and Vendor Partner of the Year awards from the largest outdoor retailer in the country, the cooperative REI. The company's mantra, not surprisingly, is very simple. Design like you give a damn. At Bigelow, We've been working with Cam and his senior management team to build the brand, guide the strategy, provide the funding for future growth, and ultimately optimize enterprise value. I had the fun of digging into some of Cam's early inspirations. He tells some stories about his motivations, successes, a few about some failures, and wisdom hard-earned in this hour-long podcast. You will detect that Cam is a close personal friend of mine, so you won't be surprised to hear him kind of correcting me in the open and also some serious tweaking going on behind the lines during this podcast. This podcast was recorded live on December 10th, 2018 at Nemo's headquarters, which is in a beautiful restored textile mill in Dover, New Hampshire. As always, the Private Enterprise Value podcasts are unscripted and unedited. I hope you enjoy it. Doing this, buddy. My pleasure. Um, Hey, did you um, have a chance to eat any of those pheasants we hunted on Saturday? I did. I'll have to uh, show you a picture real quick here. I don't know what you would call this, but and I, Katie, uh, 
Oh, nice. What is that? Handmade pasta and... Wow. With the pheasant breast. Yeah, with the pheasant breast in there. It was awesome. And then last night, she she took uh, venison from our recent Idaho trip and uh, made what we call rice bowl, where she grills rice with uh, fresh garlic and uh, and then sauteed the meat and a bunch of veggies and puts it over the rice and so it was a game meat weekend it was wow great. sounds outstanding yeah i did uh borrow a uh, a friend's uh, meat grinder meat grinder yeah <laughs> nice. yeah so we're gonna do some grinding i'm actually gonna uh give some pheasant breast away also but uh i thought i was so turned on by the way that guy ground that pheasant breast yeah yeah will you grind it first and then give it away or give it away as breast give it away yeah first yeah yeah, yeah. so they can decide yeah cool what, so, um, as you think back on uh, getting turned on by the outdoors, was there like an event, or was there something in your life that happened that meant that you um, sort of intentionally or deliberately chose to pursue an outdoor or an adventure life? Yeah, um, I think there were a few events when I was uh, when I was a little kid growing up in Manchester on Thayer Street. Um, my parents were pretty liberal about uh, my taking my bike and kind of going wherever I wanted, and I think that was, you know, and this is pretty, this was pretty common for kids at that point. Sadly, I think it's not common enough for kids today, but I think that was where my first sense of freedom and adventure came from. And uh, and then in middle school, I had an awesome um, science teacher uh, who was a Dartmouth grad and had access to all the DOC cabins and. She ran our little kind of fledgling outing club in middle school, and I did a bunch of trips with her. And part of what made that really stick for me was she um, she was really smart and she knew the ecology and kind of geology of where we would travel together. So, right. so she could name things. Yeah, it wasn't just that we would you know go out and ski to a cabin, but she would explain what was going on in nature, which really heightened the engagement. And then when I got to college, I, I um, right out of the gate, I think it was it was literally within hours of being dropped off by my parents, I met what would become one of my best friends, and he had done a lot of rock climbing in high school, and uh, I had done a lot of backpacking, and we just had great friend chemistry, and it launched um, kind of more hardcore adventuring together. We revitalized the mountain club at Middlebury and uh, and we ended up going to Denali together right after school and that really cemented kind of the core pursuits. In addition to the, you mentioned in middle school you had this teacher, in addition to that were you um, involved in any sort of um, organized outdoors? Or were you involved in any team sports for example? Yeah, I um, I did tennis and lacrosse and, uh, and Nordic skiing and uh, Nordic skiing was Probably the closest to kind of being organized outdoor adventure. How about like um, programs like Outward Bound or Knowles or any of those? Were you involved with any of those? Not, no. I desperately wanted to go to Knowles and couldn't convince my parents. Ah. So that was high school? <laughs> that was in high school. Yeah. Yeah. So um, here we are now at Nemo, and we're, we're in a conference room here at Nemo's headquarters. Um, give me a, a paragraph or two on uh, when you graduate from college... Did you know that you wanted to begin an outdoor equipment business? Tell me about your, your thinking about that. You know, the truth is um, I loved Middlebury. I, I think I, I got really lucky um, and in terms of just, you know, my college being a perfect fit. 
And uh, I loved it so much, I paid absolutely no attention to what would happen after graduation. And uh, I remember getting a voicemail from the school, like a class-wide voicemail in my senior year, saying we had a mandatory meeting to discuss CVs the following Tuesday and thinking, what in the world is a CV? <laughs> and, uh, and that was, you know, that was in the spring of senior year. So I, you know, I really, I really wasn't thinking about how I was going to kind of turn my college education into a career. My only definitive plan for after school and, you know, and I always figured I'd go back to grad school, but my, my only definitive plan um, was to climb Denali with a few friends. And, uh, and when I got back from that trip, um, I followed a girlfriend uh, down to Cambridge, Maryland, uh, worked in an Italian restaurant for a former mob family, uh, traveled to India, did a photography workshop, interned at my dad's office for a little bit because I thought architecture could possibly be interesting because mm-hmm. it combined you know, a lot of things that I love doing. And then one day, just had this epiphany, you know, I need to start an outdoor care company. And, uh, and I wrote a terrible business plan, um, which I showed my dad. And, uh, and he said, um, you need to check out industrial design. And as soon as I went online and saw what industrial design was, it was like manifest destiny. That, that's what I need to do with my life. So when you got out of uh, school, out of undergraduate school, and you, you went to work, what were some of the jobs? You said you worked in a restaurant. Did you have other jobs that were full-time jobs? No. Um, you know, really, this is essentially the only real job I've ever had. Um, and in fact, you know, I worried. I, I think one of my biggest concerns in starting Nemo was could I actually stick to anything longer than a trimester, you know, or a summer? Because I'd really never done anything uh, up to that point in life that lasted more than a few months. When you were in school in Middlebury, you were having a good experience. What kind of student were you? I was a good student. I, I, you know, I was always a good student. I would say I've never had a great memory, so I feel like I had to work harder um, than some of my classmates, but I always you know, I worked hard enough to do well in school. In, uh, in addition to your friend that you met when you first went on campus, were there other people who were particularly formative to you at Middlebury? Yeah, I had a, a core group of friends um, who shared a huge sense of adventure. And uh, probably the best way to, to, to exhibit that is um, on my 21st birthday, which was sophomore year in November, I, uh, I went to bed thinking that my friends all sucked because there was no recognition of my birthday. And, uh, and I was kind of bummed out. And, I, and then I woke up at two in the morning to half a dozen guys wearing ski masks, holding plastic guns, uh, screaming at me to get out of bed and put this harness on. And basically, they uh, they were acting like they were you know a special operations team and they dragged me out of my room made me rappel down a window onto the back of a dirt bike <laughs> which was an unregistered dirt bike uh, which we used to race across campus and got chased by the campus police and then we pulled up to another dorm and they made me climb rope up into a third story window and then there were 20 people there waiting and uh, and we had a big birthday party. And so your friends didn't suck after all. They didn't suck at all. Okay, good. yeah, yeah. Good and, to hear. And actually, it it started a a tradition. Um, and there's been a couple of movies about this kind of thing. And it really it got to epic proportions. I mean, we um, you know, 
for this little group of friends, uh, you know, every time a birthday would come along, the expectation was you would sort of outdo, you know, what had been done before. And it got to the point of, you know, diffusing fake bombs and uh, helicopters and planes. And, uh, and, you know, we had a couple in Boston. I mean, it was, um, it became pretty amazing. So anyway, that those group of friends were more than friends. I mean, they really, you know, still are like brothers. So uh, take me to your decision to go to graduate school. Then you uh, you were down in Cambridge, Maryland. You were um, serving the um, chicken parmesan, <laughs> and uh, you were doing some outdoor exploring. Uh, You're thinking about the future, and uh, talked with Barry about maybe architecture as a profession. Discovered industrial design, and went bing. What happened? Yeah. So as soon as. I saw what industrial design was. I remember going to RISD's website and, uh, you know, I'd grown up enjoying fine arts and being pretty good at fine arts. Both my parents are artistic. And, uh, and as soon as I saw their website and saw what ID was, it was like, that is the perfect merger of the things that I really enjoy. And, uh, and so I, I didn't look at any other schools. I drove down to RISD, um, met with the admissions woman, literally said to her, I'm coming to school here. What do you want from me? And uh, we stayed friends after that because right. I was so kind of bold. Um, and uh, I didn't have a portfolio um, of design work. And so I spent, after the travels that I did right after school, I spent a couple of months um, at home just focused on building this portfolio. I uh, went through the admissions process, was accepted. And um, I had to make a decision whether to go whether to apply um, to their graduate program or their undergraduate program. And, and I decided to do undergrad because graduate design is really two years of working with a mentor. And, uh, and undergrad is really learning metalworking, learning uh, woodworking, um, learning the fundamentals of, of design. And I knew I needed all that. So I went back, basically got another undergrad degree for the next three and a half years. Which you must have believed really set you up for sort of paving the runway to be able to go to where you were trying to go to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I fought it in a lot of ways when I was there. Um, you know, I was, I went in with a big ego. I was, you know, 20 something years old and, uh, and I, you know, had written this shitty business plan and thought, you know, I'm going to school right now to execute on this mission. Was that actually in your mind? Did you have sort of the business plan in the back of your mind thinking this is a step I need to take 100%. in order to accomplish that? Really? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah, I was there to start my company, which was which was unfortunate in some ways. It's hard to say. I mean, I you know, it, it shaped an experience that I look back on now and think was really serendipitous. But I was so anti-establishment um, because of that, because I, I thought I knew exactly what I wanted and when I didn't get it, I'd fight it. And, uh, and so, you know, I feel bad to some degree for the administration at the time because I was pretty loud voice. But, um, but, you know, when I got out of school after a year or two and I looked back, I th you know, I've, I've since come to deeply appreciate the experience I had there. So now that you are uh, leading an organization, uh, you somehow have sympathy for the people who are trying to lead RISD while, while you were there. Yeah, I mean, it's the peculiar thing about art school is it's, you know, artists being taught by artists, being administered by artists, being funded by artists, <laughs> and uh, and artists don't aren't typically, I would say, associated with management and and, and administration. Yeah. 
but it's an, an amazing place. And, you know, I, uh, it was unlike anything I had done in life or unlike anywhere I had been, um, primarily because, you know, you could do, say, or wear anything and, uh, you know, in art school. And, um, and that really allowed me to explore my creative limits. I mean, I was coming from, um, you know, kind of yuppie upbringing and in uh, the north end of Manchester, went to a private high school, private college, um, to then go to a city and be in that environment, um, broke down some of that ego and, uh, and helped me kind of see my creative potential in a really important way. Cool. So you, um, you exited RISD and, um, you began Nemo. Yeah. And what was the, what was the, the foundation of the name and the brand? Why Nemo? Well, you know, when I look back, one of the toughest challenges actually was just naming the company. And, uh, I convinced my, one of my best climbing buddies at the time to go 50, 50 with me on starting Nemo. He was, uh, he had studied engineering management. He had an engineering management master's from Dartmouth, which is essentially like a business degree with an engineering angle. So I thought, and the only, you know, business management I'd done was a summer of college pro painting. Um, so I figured he'll tackle the business side. I'll tackle the product side. And, uh, and so it was the two of us, um, in the spring I was, I, I started Nemo as my senior project. So I was, I was still a student at RISD. Um, it was in the spring of 2002 and, uh, and I did a few you know, product design projects inside of my studios to think about what Nemo's first products would be. Um, and, and ultimately I kind of culminated my senior project in proposing our whole brand, like coming up with a corporate identity, you know, what the mission would be and this little portfolio of these projects that I'd done in various studios. And, um, and I, my friend and I spent a lot of time brainstorming the name, um, and it was really tough. I mean, we put together God only knows how many names and some of them were trying to borrow on, um, you know, the, the tradition in the industry of these austere sounding names like mountain safety research, you know, or outdoor research or whatever. Right. And, um, and so one of the names on the list was New England Mountain Equipment. Um, and there was another New England Mountain Outfitters. And there was like a nice tone to that. But then when you imagined all those letters in a logo, you know, couldn't quite see having a, you know, woven label on a product with, you know, 48 letters in it. And, um, and so we entertained the idea of some acronyms and Nemo came up. And of course this was well before finding Nemo. And, uh, and so the only allusions to the word Nemo were Jules Verne's Captain Nemo, who was this adventurer, engineer, moral crusader, crusader, um, and the Latin derivative, uh, no man. Iliad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, which evokes being out in the middle of nowhere. So that seemed pretty cool. And, uh, of course when the movie came along, you know, literally my heart stopped. I mean, I think in the same day that I saw the announcement of the movie, I was searching for new URLs, figuring there's no way we can keep this name, but the uh, the puns on Nemo passed within a year or two, and I think today it's it's held up as a pretty good name. Yeah, it's a great name, very identifiable. So, how um, 
how quickly did you decide to go and uh, access outside investor capital? Was that sort of from the beginning? No, I, you know, I don't think I knew what that was or where to go look for it or why I would need it in the beginning. Um, you know, I was a liberal arts slash art student grad, um, and we moved into our first office space three days after graduation. Um, and my buddy and I each had 7500 bucks, and the slightly improved business plan now said we'd be profitable in six months. So I don't think in the beginning I thought I would ever need <laughs> investment, which, by the way, as a quick side note, um, is interesting to me looking back because many people over the years have said, boy, you were really brave you know, to start your own company. Um, I think I was really ignorant, and it's easy to be brave when you're ignorant. Sure, um, sure. But anyway, I think I realized we need investment um, for the first time around 2005. We had our first, we had, we had just debuted at the Outdoor Retailer Show in the summer of 2004. And, uh, and we were invited to apply um, for a competition out of the big trade show in Germany called the ISPO Brand New Award which celebrates the most innovative brands in our industry. And we won this, we were the overall winner of this, of this big uh, contest in 2005. And, uh, and suddenly it was like, wow, we might have a real company here. And, um, and we were running out of cash and we needed to produce, you know, we needed to have our first real production. And, uh, and so I, you know, I started to socialize this around our networks and, um, and discovered this notion of angel investors, and uh, and that began, you know, what ultimately would be five rounds of equity investment over the years. So, uh, moving from you know the first uh, or not the first, but the the serious iteration of the business plan, and getting started and winning the award and the realization that to grow might take outside capital. I'm guessing. Um, that, that was giving up some stuff that was fairly familiar and going into some territory that was fairly unfamiliar. And I don't know, but, you know, that could be uh, scary. In, in hindsight, uh, was it scary? And were any of those fears justified? You know, um, I think the first time that I really realized um, I wasn't on the path I thought I was going to be on was... Shortly after starting the company, about a year in or so, um, actually I think it was less than that, even maybe six or eight months in, I didn't yet know that I could kind of see an idea all the way through the go-to-market process. Like, you know, I I knew I could draw, I knew I could make CAD models, um, but I had never, you know, contracted production. And, uh, and I didn't know what that path looked like kind of from my drawings to actually making stuff mass producing stuff, let's say. And so I hired a, um, a consultant to help, um, with some of that product development and, you know, seeing that the work he did showed me that I could do it better. And, uh, and so that was the last time actually we ever hired out anything creative related to product. And, uh, but it was also kind of a pivotal moment because, you know, I, and if I look back, actually, there's another key moment like this um, when I was still in school. But, you know, I would assume that there were kind of limitations to what I could do in the context of starting this business. And, 
you know, and go on this, um, you know, kind of exploration phase and, uh, and then usually come around to, to re- realizing that the people who were doing it for a living were living were human beings and they had limitations. And, and if we tried hard, we could do it pretty well ourselves. And that's kind of been true, um, across every aspect of the business. And the first, you know, like I said, sort of the first time now, when I think about it, that that really struck me. And, and a lot of what kind of gave me the courage, if you will, to start the company was the, uh, the only other brand I've worked for in our industry was black diamond. I was an intern for them after my first year in design school. And, uh, and I went in, um, you know, as a rock climber and ice climber, thinking that these things that we depended on for our safety when we were climbing must be imbued imbued with something magical you know like there was there had to be something about you know a piece of webbing sewn back to itself in a loop that was more than just that um, because you're counting on it for your you know for your safety and uh and when i was at black diamond um about a week into the job my boss um who was head of uh all hard goods development um took me to their sample room and showed me how to sew a runner which is this this webbing loop that we use in climbing and uh and he pulled off a length of webbing from a spool hot knifed it um you know to you know a few feet long and uh and then kind of wrapped it around to itself tucked in a little black diamond woven label stuck it in the bar tack machine hit go a couple of times to put a few bar tacks on it and we could literally have walked it out to Black Diamond's retail shop and sold it. And uh, that single experience um, was one of the most important for me in realizing, you know what, I can do this. And uh, and there were kind of a series of events really like that over the last 16 years, um, which have emboldened us to kind of try to do things our own way. So I think a lot of entrepreneur owner managers uh, have the fun and the wisdom of getting some outside uh, expertise and then have this uh, if they get great questions they have these moments of discovery where the questions help them to find their own answers to, to issues and to me you're kind of describing your methodology for doing that I think of you as being very intentional uh, in terms of what you're doing in life and, and what you're doing at Nemo Intentional uh, implies some goal setting. How do you think about goal setting? Are there certain methodologies that you've used for yourself that are tried and true? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I want to have a nice slick answer now to how I set a goal. (laughs) Um, But I think the truth is most of the time I say, let's be careful to not set goals too far out, for example. Um, when I was uh, when I was in college, um, I went to Tom Brown's Tracking and Survival School for a week, and uh, and learned a bunch of fascinating things about tracking and surviving. But um, at the end of it, he gave kind of a life philosophy speech, and uh, and he said, you know, you should think of um, your journey through life as kind of being like a tourist in a foreign land versus the way most people kind of execute their day-to-day routine. As in, when you travel to a foreign place, all of your senses are activated and you really are paying attention to every little detail. And 
and also you're learning at this intense rate. And so if you're going to plan a great uh, vacation or a great adventure, um, you should do this careful balance of trying to plan beforehand, but also going and really having your senses activated and paying attention and learning along the way. So he said, never plan a trip from A to Z. Plan, you know, from say A to C or A to D or whatever. And, uh, and leave room um, to learn as you go. So that stuck with me. I've, that's sort of been um, validated by my own experiences. The best trips and adventures I've had, including Nemo, have been ones where I could not have possibly sort of really laid out the roadmap ahead of time. So I have goals, but they're more philosophical ones related to where I find fulfillment, what my values are. But generally speaking, we don't try to make detailed plans too far in advance. And I can't help but um, grin a little bit because we're, of course, in the middle of a five-year planning process, which you, Pete, have, uh, have <laughs> contributed to. <laughs> so uh, in, um, in psychology, we use this term called a Lockean exclamation. The Lockean exclamation is named after John Locke. And loosely, it's basically, um, don't tell me what I can't do. Or don't tell me what I can do, but don't tell me what I can't do. And I find that many entrepreneur owner managers are motivated by that, right? How frequently or how closely do you find yourself motivated by that? Um, probably on some level more than I realize, although um, I don't think that I'm particularly motivated by how others see me. Um, and I, you know, I'm sure there's there's a, a great potential for just not being self-aware um, in saying that. But, um, but I, I I don't think I've ever really cared too much what other people have thought I could or couldn't do. Um, I'm certainly not out to prove anybody wrong. Um, you know, I I think through design school and through starting Nemo, um, I didn't have a lot of folks on the sidelines. De making declarative statements one way or another about whether I could or couldn't do it um, or if they were there I wasn't really listening like it was um, I just wanted to make my life an adventure you know I wanted to live an adventure every day and I don't today I, I don't think um, if anything I, I guess I would I care at this point um, quite a bit actually about the folks here at Nemo and feeling like they're bought into our direction and uh and they, you know, sort of share the mission. Um, there's, I've discovered a lot of satisfaction in um, in watching people here grow with the company and be successful. And uh, in some ways, um, you know, one of the things that drove me to start Nemo in the first place was when I was at RISD in our studios. You know, we would be working together with fifteen or twenty people in a room who were you know, really talented and brought each brought their own interesting stories. I think about half of our class were quote transfers, which means, you know, they'd graduated um, from another school, uh, typically not transfers in your typical sense where, you know, they had started out somewhere for two years and then came to RISD. They, they called everyone who had already gotten a degree a transfer. And, um, and so we had, you know, a huge range of um, folks and, uh, and I loved loved the uh, the camaraderie of that environment and I loved the camaraderie um, of 
being with my half a dozen best friends doing our various crazy little um, adventures in New England. And, uh, you know, for example, um, doing the Whitney Gilman rock climbing route on, on Cannon uh, for the first time and only half really knowing how to rock climb. Um, it was really the camaraderie uh, that kind of made us do that and made us do that sort of thing over and over. So I'd say in the negative sense of wanting to prove um, people wrong, not so much, but sharing the mission, the, the camaraderie um, of uh, trying to accomplish something together is tremendously motivating. So when you think about uh, the team at NEMO, and you know, axiomatically, um, you know, organizations work best when um, everyone believes that they make a difference in the outcome, and you might even define that as make, feeling like an owner. How do you fuel uh, the team at NEMO feeling like owners? Treating them with respect. I mean, I, I think um, you know, we do have uh, management incentive options you know, for our senior managers and that, that sort of conventional things. But, um, but I think uh, the most impactful thing we do culturally to engage everyone is hire really talented, smart people and let them do their job well and, uh, and treat them with respect. And, you know, I think everyone here knows that they're valued. And, uh, and that's exactly the feeling that I had when I was at RISD or when I was on a rock climb. I mean, you're, you know, you absolutely count on your Belayer. Um, and, uh, and I, I find a lot of satisfaction in that dependency on each other, share, sharing that together. So when organizations are at their best, they can be a fairly young emerging organization like Nemo, but they can also be very mature organizations. When they're at their best, there's a lot of role clarity. I mean, the people are clear about what the mission is. They're clear about that being an ideal. They're clear about some achievable objectives. And as I think about your role at Nemo, you're um, not only the chief executive officer, uh, I, I would call you the chief innovative innovation officer. And I don't know if that's a title here. It's probably not, but maybe we ought to make it so. But uh, so that there's a role of being a traditionally that would be thought of as a leader, a CEO, and chief innovation officer would be almost a craft, a craftsman. So that that's a challenging role, right? To be a working craftsman. How do you balance that role, and how do you get it so there's clarity for other Nemo team members? You know, and I've never thought about it. Um, as sort of vividly as I am in this conversation, but I think I've been playing that role most of my life. I mean, I, uh, when I think back to the sort of analogy of those outdoor adventures, it was usually me that came up with the idea, that pushed it, um, that organized us, uh, that sort of led us um, when we were out. And, uh, and you know, at the same time, I, I guess I've always been... Um, in love with making things, and uh, and so I think those two things have been with me always. I, I I can't say that I I put a lot of conscious effort into that. I enjoy leading and I enjoy innovating, um, and I think I do both of them pretty well. So, do you know? Are you familiar with my the concept unique ability? The concept that I use for unique ability: what you're uniquely good at. No, it's not just like what you're good at, not what you're great at. Not what you're better at than other people, but when I say uniquely good, it means like, what are the things that you can do that are so great that when you do them, people say, Cam, oh my God, that's fantastic. And you're thinking to yourself, that was actually pretty easy for me. 
What would you say is your unique ability or what would people who know you really well would say is your unique ability? Um, I think probably the, the thing that would come to mind for most people is related to creativity one way or another. Um, is it a methodology with creativity? Perhaps, you know, I, I think over the years I've definitely, I've spent so much time creatively problem solving. I've definitely evolved a method for doing that. Um, which in case you're about to ask me what it is, I'm not sure I've ever really put it into words. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, I definitely have an approach, um, to creative problem solving, but I think I'm, I'm, uh, well, it's kind of back to something I said in the beginning. I've never had a great memory. Um, and, but I would say on the other hand, I was always a great student because of my pattern recognition ability and problem solving ability. Um, and, uh, and that's to me, one manifestation of that is in literally making physical things. Um, you know, I think it's one thing, you know, for example, I, I love woodworking, but the kind of woodworking that I do is not to follow someone else's instructions, um, to make something and uh and it's i'm the same way with legos i'm not sure i've ever followed other than helping my five-year-old now i'm not sure i've ever followed lego instructions in my life um i uh i look at um even woodworking as a design problem which to me is really uh sort of a combination of art and accountability you know like you're 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 trying to solve a problem. There's a functional requirement, but you want the outcome to also be something beautiful and interesting. And uh, and that's that approach applies to Nemo as a whole. That's how I've treated um, kind of solving the problem of Nemo. And um, and that's, for example, how I'm treating the problem of solving a five-year business plan. Um, I didn't go. I didn't do a single Google search for a five-year plan. Um, I didn't go and pull something out of a book. Um, we, uh, we sort of apply the same approach, um, as we do to any other kind of creative, creative problem. It's challenging though, right? Because, uh, I've seen some of your woodworking and I've been thrilled by some of your creative process and your woodworking. You've been generous enough to send me some, uh, historical guidance along the way. Like this is the plank I started with, or this is the tree that I started with, right? And uh, when you when you did that in the sequence, I wasn't really able to predict where that was necessarily going. But you were working as a solo craftsman. So you could envision in your mind and figure out what that was going to be. And some of the beautiful live edge furniture that you've made is just, is just gorgeous. But I wonder if that would even be um, more challenging to do with a team as opposed to as an individual. I think the challenge is in building the team. Um that you can really do that with. Uh, but I think with the right team, it wouldn't be challenging at all. It would be wonderful. Um, there would be a great sense of camaraderie. But There would be, yeah. But finding the people um, who would share the vision and bring the right talents to bear, that's the hard part. So a lot of the people listening to this podcast, Cam, um, are successful entrepreneur owner managers. And as they listen to Positive Enterprise Value, they already think a lot about goals, you know, uh, and they sort of probably have to balance short term versus long term. They think about behavior to achieve those goals. And I would say that sometimes uh, if you do behavior to achieve goals enough, it becomes a habit. W what would you say are your best habits? Mm. 
I like sleeping a lot and I depend on it a great deal. Um, so I, I try really hard to uh, shut my brain off at the end of the night, uh, maybe read for 20 minutes and be asleep by 1030 and, uh, and try and get a good eight hours. Um, I'm drinking a lot more kombucha these days, which seems to be helpful. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, I think, um, and I've especially discovered this in the last couple of years, um, I need a bit of, uh, let's say, what's the right way to say this? A bit of good visceral, viscerally satisfying fun in life. And it's, I think it's easy to get really wrapped up with, with work and with the intellectual challenges of it. And, um, you know, for example, for the last couple of days, uh, I've been chopping a lot of firewood. We don't burn firewood. Um, occasionally in the fire, fire pit. pit. Yeah. Occasionally in the fire pit out back, but I have a eight foot by 10 foot trailer stacked high with firewood that I have no need for. But, <laughs> um, but just because I have a beautiful, um, Swedish forged splitting mall, and it's tremendously satisfying to use and it's great physical activity and on some level is really satisfying to my manly id and uh and i think keeping recognizing my animal needs um is really important to keeping life in balance and some of that is the testosterone that comes from exercise some of that is um the spiritual recentering that comes from adventuring. Um, so I'm trying really hard to kind of keep those things as habits. There was uh, there were a couple of years, um, particularly around our last big equity investment in 2012, 2013, where um, I let that stuff get out of bounds a little bit, and then it becomes this vicious cycle. So yeah, I mean, uh, my experience has been that uh, for for high performing entrepreneurs, um, 90% of the challenge is psychological. Right, you're a giver, and you give, and you give here, and you give to your customers, and you give creatively, and you give to your family, and when you give and give and give, you can get depleted, yeah. and so part of the challenge is for us as entrepreneurs is figuring out our self care. I don't really like that term, but you know what I mean, mm -hmm. and to figure out uh, can we find things that we can do which uh, replete us, that refresh us, that rejuvenate us. Uh, and you just mentioned like being in outdoors and doing some physical stuff. Do you have like a workout routine that you, you know, I want to say the word religiously, but you structurally just have con have committed yourself to for the purpose of self-care? I do. Um, I, uh, I've always been strong for my size. Uh, I'm six feet, medium build. Um, but in college, I was fourth on our college record board and uh, for bench press. And, uh, and I've enjoyed trying to keep that up over the years. So I, I, I get a good amount of satisfaction from um, being 100 pounds smaller than the biggest guy in the gym, but outlifting him. Um, and it's kind of connected to um, part of my own self-evaluation is Darwinian. You know, I, um, and, and a little bit of this came from RISD, actually, uh, just from feeling like I was surrounded by a lot of people who didn't come from outdoor experience and whose lives were so urban centered, you know, and if I felt like if civilization disappeared, um, they wouldn't have a chance of surviving. And there was something disconcerting about that to me. And I, it sort of doubled, redoubled my desire to, to feel like I 
deserve to survive on some level. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you think about sort of uh, uh, human evolution and biological uh, selection. And 200,000 years of Homo sapiens, we were biologically evolved to like chase the gazelle, kill the gazelle, yeah. eat the gazelle, right? Yeah. Yeah. And now we're in a, uh, a, a mass popular culture, which really doesn't allow us to do those things very much. It actually yeah. sort of discourages it. And is it any surprise then we've got a bunch of people sort of bottled up inside themselves, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think that'll, it's going to be there one way or another and it can manifest itself in ugly ways. And, and, and I'll say too, um, you know, I always felt like with Nemo, my primary mission was to make my life an adventure and that if it didn't work out, uh, absolute worst case scenario, I could take a backpack worth of stuff and just disappear and I'd be perfectly fulfilled. Yeah. And that's, though I... <laughs> I didn't want to do that, and I, I don't know that the reality of that would really be all that great. Um, believing that on a deep enough level uh, gave me a lot of confidence over the years. So do you pursue also any um, anything that helps you go more into yourself? I'm, I'm not sure what I'm looking for, but something like yoga or meditation? Is that part of your practice? No, um, no, not in a formal sense, um, and part of it is... Uh, just this stubborn, sometimes irrational desire to just kind of do things my own way. I mean, I, my workout in the gym is a CrossFit routine, but I don't go to CrossFit gym. I just like to do it. Um, I would say, and this actually came from the same um, tracking and survival school, but one of the things Tom Brown talked about was wide-angle vision. And, uh, and I have been a pr practitioner of wide-angle vision since that class, however many years ago that was now, 20 years ago. And, uh, and my resting heart rate is under 50 beats per minute. So I think I, in an informal way, um, have spent quite a bit of time trying to understand my subconscious. I, I've recognized over the years of Nemo that all of my best ideas of every kind have come out of my subconscious. And, uh, and so I've tried to figure out how to nurture that process and, um, but in my, on my own terms. So you and I have spoken um, about our experiences that the most successful people we meet are, uh, are, are multiphasic, kind of what you're describing. And one of the parts of that is uh, their learning. It could be listening to podcasts, it could be reading, it could be other kinds of learning. Um, what, what are uh, one or two or three things that you're doing that are advancing your learning right now? Um, well, I'm always reading a lot. Um, reading anything interesting at the moment? Predisposed. I have a few books going right now, but, um, but just started Predisposed, which is trying to... Uh, the thesis is that um, we vote along political lines that are actually driven by our personality. They're tied into our, our personality. And, and the stated hope of the book is to kind of heal some of the divide by making us realize... Um, that your neighbor doesn't disagree with you politically because he's an idiot or a jerk. It's just wired into different personalities and we should appreciate our different personalities or appreciate our different political points of view like we appreciate we have different personalities. Um, so is, that's is good. That John Haidt, do you know? Mm, I don't remember the okay. author's name. Um, but, you know, that's sort of timely for obvious reasons. I... Uh, I really enjoy reading The Atlantic. I read that somewhat religiously. I don't 
pay much attention to we don't have cable tv i don't pay much attention to um kind of mainstream pop culture or news um i'd say lately outside of uh those kind of external sources um as nemo has gotten more uh successful and kind of networked um i've really enjoyed participating participating in our industry a trade association and kind of making other friends in the industry and and you know i i've had the title of ceo for a long time but it's it had no meaning 10 years ago you know we didn't we didn't need a ceo and i'm kind of discovering in the last year or two um what a ceo should look like and realizing that and this is a moving target um but realizing i think one of the keys to it is building relationships inside and outside the organization and uh and so i've been making a more deliberate effort to do that and uh, and for example participating in um in the big love forum for the last few years has been tremendously stimulating and uh, and some of the folks i've met um through our relationship with bigelow um you know have been really stimulating so yeah, it's, nemo's it's, bringing me more of that and it's, and it's but but you point out something interesting i think which is it is challenging to um, develop uh, the uh, venues where you can um, have contribute to and receive the kind of camaraderie you talked about with the guys who woke you up on your 21st birthday. I mean, it's, it's really hard to duplicate that, right? It is. But yet we get so much uh, of our energy from that, yeah. from that positive energy from those other people. So, yeah. so um, let me just take you back. Uh, if, if you were, people listening to this now, listening to a guy who actually had his business plan squared away before he actually got out of uh, RISD and uh, went to RISD in order to implement the business plan, really, in a way is what you said. So there are some people listening who are um, would-be entrepreneurs. Maybe they're students, maybe they're grad students, maybe they're between jobs, they're thinking about to do it. What is uh, a piece of advice that you would give a would-be entrepreneur who wants to become a successful entrepreneur like you? I think um, simply said, it's kind of back to something we were talking about before. Don't try to make the plan from A to Z before you start. Um, I can't imagine how you could really anticipate, MBA or not, <laughs> all the challenges that are coming um, in the adventure of starting a business. I think it's squaring away the first few basic steps. Um, and people talk about the need for passion. Um, I think passion ultimately is really important in undertaking, you know, this kind of adventure because, you know, it's it's um, it's going to be a hard slog. I think no matter what. Um, but I think almost more important than passion is self awareness and kind of recognizing what your abilities are and making sure that your business plan or whatever your vision is um, really utilizes your, that you have the right talents to pair with that, let's just say. And in other words, I think you have to pick something that you're good at and doing something well creates this kind of flywheel of passion and success and hard work. Yeah, I mean, you do hear so many people today talk about following your passion which I think nominally is sort of good advice, but I think if it could be couched that 
follow your talent, yeah. follow your unique ability. Yeah. And then if you have passion for that, that's a wonderful combination. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it turns out it's, it, you're going to find passion. I think when you start, when, when you create that cycle of doing something really well and then having people recognize it, that will fuel passion. So like, what's the worst recommendations you hear being given today for young entrepreneurs? Hmm. Um, I'm not sure what the worst, you know, I don't, I don't hear a ton of recommendation, you know, firsthand, but I actually, something comes to mind. I, uh, I'm participating in this little advisory group at my high school, uh, Dairyfield, um, called Group X led by the Dean of Innovation there. And he's doing a brilliant job of trying to build innovation into the curriculum at Dairyfield. And, um, and, you know, I, uh, I was at a session last week um, for this group where two seniors came in who are doing a senior project and they presented the work they're doing. And all of us business people, um, uh, you know, of course, immediately tried to sort of critique what they're doing in the context of our world, you know, and what would make successful business. And I think we gave some good feedback. But after the students cleared out um, and we kind of did a wrap up with the dean he pointed out that them failing actually could be a success and uh and it was i think it took us all back a little bit because you know once you set out to start a business you don't accept the notion of failure broadly or you better not you know because you need to kind of persevere and have this grit and determination um but I think I think for us, uh, and this gets into a little bit of a cliche, but um, but there's a tremendous opportunity to learn in the failures. I think it's about how you treat failures and successes. And we've always said here, um, we try to brush off the successes and dwell on the failures. And um, and I think there's a little bit of a culture broadly today of um, of uh, a discomfort with failure. And of course, you're not going to start a business. Um, with the notion that if you fail, it's okay in the big picture. But I think the little failures are perfectly fine. And, uh, and it's, you know, knowing how to handle them and learn from them and move past them, I think is really critical. So I'm not sure if that exactly answers the yeah, question. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in fact, uh, since um, no one can predict the future, then some of what we do in the future is going to be successful and some of it's going to fail, right? And uh, one of the things I love about that uh, dialectic is I think about, well, when you have a success, when you have a win, what does it cause you to do? And I would say, it doesn't cause you to do anything. It tells you basically keep on doing what you're doing. Whereas if you have a failure, particularly a spectacular failure, if you are a thinking person, you think to yourself, oh, don't want to do that again. So how am I going to change my behavior so I don't do that again? Well, that changing the behavior, that's called learning, right? Totally. And so, uh, yeah, I love your answer for that. So, so um, let's uh, pretend we go to sleep tonight, and let's pretend we wake up tomorrow morning, and it's uh, December eighteenth, two thousand and twenty-eight. So we're not projecting what it's like to be there. Today is December eighteenth, two thousand twenty-eight, and you say, Pete, remember that day we did the uh, the uh, podcast interview? And I'm saying, yeah. And what are you working on? Wow. Good question. So I guess to be consistent with my responses so far, I should say I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs>
but I hope it's. Um, but if you had hopes for what you'd be working on, <laughs> um, I hope that it's building something. I hope it's doing it with a great team of people. I hope it's maintaining some balance in life. Um, I hope my family's healthy. Uh, you know, I hope it looks a lot like today. Cool. Okay, here's the last question. Uh, there are a lot of people who um, have a, a view of you. You're a leader in a company with a great name, image, reputation, in a, a very uh, attractive field. So there are people who have like an image of who you are or wh what they think. Um, if you could set the record straight for us, if people have a popular misconception about you that you feel is a misunderstanding, what would that be? Hmm. Um, I, that's a good question. And I, 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 I really, you know, again, I guess to be sort of um, consistent in my response, I don't spend a lot of time, honestly, um, thinking about how other people see me. So I really, I'm really not sure, but um, I guess I would, I would say uh, that I love the business part of Nemo as much as the making part, you know, like that I, I think if anything, over the years, people have underestimated my interest in and possibly my ability in the business side of my role, um, you know, that they are tempted to oversimplify and sort of decouple, you know, say, hey, you went to art school, you know, do you really want to run the business? Um, and, uh, and truthfully, um, again, you know, as I mentioned before, I, I see the problem solving that we do here across the board being pretty symmetrical. Like it's, it's how we tackle any problem um, is with this sort of design approach that we've created over the years. So I, I, I love the, the, um, all the components of it, I guess. I, I truly enjoy at this point um, crafting a financial plan as much as crafting a line plan. And, uh, and I think people, people close to the organization see that, but, um, but I suspect many people, especially when they, you know, see that I'm, uh, enthusiastic about woodworking, for example, can't imagine that both that I sort of enjoy both sides of the brain, um, but I do. Well, I think, uh, I think you're being completely consistent. I mean, I see that the company and your life is an intersection of disciplines and that you have this unique ability in what I'll call pattern recognition, but I would also say situational awareness that uh, makes me feel like I can hardly wait to see what the answer is on uh, <laughs> December 18, 2028. But I am uh, personally committed to your personal and professional success, and I want to thank you so much for being here uh, as a podcast guest on Positive Enterprise Value Camp. Thanks so much, Pete. It's been incredibly fulfilling uh, being uh, your friend and working with you for these last few years. Thank you.